Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. Again, you'll find the passage on page 2 of your bulletin, but it's always good to have your Bibles open in front of you as we look at these texts in context. 1 Peter chapter 2, this morning we come to verses 13 through 17. This is God's word. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to hear a uh, wonderful preacher named Thabiti Anyabwile. I practiced that all week. Anyabwile. It's kind of funny. He always, he, he, uh, he, every time he preaches, he gives a different uh, defin- or, uh, interpretation or different uh, meaning for his name. He always says, I'm going to tell you what my name really means, Anya Buile, uh, but it's always different in some joke for whatever audience he's preaching to. But uh, he's a gifted preacher. He's an African-American preacher. He has a very uh, rough ministry in the Cayman Islands, uh, but he... Uh, uh, he's been speaking at a lot of reform conferences lately, and I really enjoy his preaching. But I remember a couple years ago, he was talking about the issue of unity in the church and some of the things that destroy that unity in the church. And he talked about cultural identities as a problem. He, he talked about how we tend to develop a worldly identity, an, an identity in relation to who we are out there in the world, and we allow that to become our primary identity even when we come together as Christians. And so he says as a result of that, we have black churches and white churches. We have Korean churches and American churches. We have upper-class churches and lower-class churches. We have generational churches, older churches and young adult churches. And he was using as illustration, not that any of those things are bad, not that any of those identities are inherently bad, but when they become our primary identity to the point where they begin to divide us culturally in the church, it's a problem. And he used a great, if you're any kind of a sports fan, he used a great illustration for this problem. He said, you ever watch the the Pro Bowl, which is the NFL, the National Football League's all-star game? The Pro Bowl, in the Pro Bowl, basically... If you're from the American Conference, you wear a red and white or a red uniform. And if you're from the National Football Conference, you wear a blue uniform. But each player wears their own helmet. And so when you see the players on the field, you know which team they're playing for in that game, but you also know who their real team is, the team that owns them, the team under whom that they're under contract to. And he said, you ever notice how they play that game? They play that all-star game very tentatively. They, they, they don't hit as hard. They don't run as hard. They don't want to hurt themselves. They aren't going to take any risks 
because their primary team is the team on their helmet, not the team on their jersey. And he said, you know, it's kind of like that in the church too often. We have this primary cultural identity out there in the world. You know, we're black, we're white, we're middle class, we're upper class, we're, you know, whatever our social status is. But when we come into the church, we might temporarily wear the uniform of the church, but our primary identity is too much what it is in the world. At the end of that message, I remember Thabiti saying, in the gospel, the church is multi-ethnic, but it's not multicultural. The church is multi-ethnic. In other words, we do come from a variety of backgrounds, and we are to celebrate in many ways the variety of, of, of our backgrounds. But when we come together in Christ, we have one culture. And it's a kingdom culture. A culture that is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And that is our primary identity. As Paul says in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven, even while we still live on the earth. Matter of fact, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens to the kingdom of God. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. That's our primary identity. No matter where we come from, no matter where we live in this world, no matter how we live, we have a new king and we serve all serve him together as Lord. And we are under His absolute authority and we live to fulfill His law. But we also, meanwhile, live under the laws of our country and we live under the authorities of our president, our congress, our governor, and our court system. And so Peter, we've seen this a number of times already. We're only coming to the end of chapter 2 and already a number of times he's called attention to the fact that we are to live like exiles in this world. Chapter 1, verse 1, he calls the church elect exiles in the world. We are dispersed elect exiles because our primary citizenship is in the kingdom of God even while we live in earthly kingdoms. Chapter 2, verse 9, he calls the church a chosen race, a holy nation. Remember we talked about how that's important to our identity as a church that we are a holy nation, a chosen race. And then last week, we looked at, in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, where again he calls Christians sojourners and exiles. That we are to stand out in our attitudes and our behavior because we are sojourners and exiles in this world. So as our Lord told us, he says, I'm not calling you out of the world. I'm sending you into the world. I'm dispersing you into the world to live among the kingdoms of men but to live with Christ as Lord. So, in a sense, to go back to Thabiti's analogy, we are to wear the uniforms, to wear the jersey of our temporary kingdoms, but never lose sight of the fact that Christ is Lord, that it's the kingdom of heaven that we wear on our helmets as our true identity. That's where we belong. Well, how do we live then, if this is true? If our primary cultural identity is that we are citizens of Christ's kingdom, 
and we have this secondary, temporary, earthly identity and earthly kingdoms, how then should we live? Well, Peter answers this question in verse 16. Here's the principle. Live as people who are free. Live as people who are free. You are not ultimately a part of the kingdoms of darkness. You are free in Christ. Because of the cross of Christ, we are free from the power of sin. And we are free from the penalty of sin. Because of the cross of Christ, we are no longer slaves to what binds the people of this world. We are free. We serve Christ. And we will serve Him for eternity. But, interestingly, do you notice the two main verbs, the two main exhortations that Peter gives to the church in light of that? You are free citizens of the kingdom of God, serving King Jesus as Lord. Now, here's how you're to live. He gives two verbs. First of all, submit. And secondly, serve. Submit and serve. That's not what you would expect when you first hear, you're free. You're not ultimately under that authority. You're under Christ, but submit and serve. Let's look at the first one, submission. Verse 13, be subject to every human institution. Be subject. The word literally means put yourself under. Place yourself under authority to every human institution. And in context, as we'll see in a moment, he's clearly referring to civil authorities, other cultural authorities. Applies even, I guess, it would begin in the classroom with your teacher. In the workplace, it'd be your boss. But particularly, he has civil authorities in mind. So you think of the police force, the military, judges, congressmen, governors, presidents. These are human authorities. Authorities created by people in this world. And basically, Peter is saying here, insofar as is possible, be a team player. Put yourself under authority. Play by the team's rules. You know, it would be tempting in the first century, just as it's tempting today, to say, I'm a Christian. Christ is Lord. I don't want to have anything to do with earthly authorities. I don't want to have anything to do with earthly kingdoms. I just want to live and experience my freedom as a citizen of Christ's kingdom and not have anything to do with the kingdoms of men. But Peter says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, for this is the will of God. Now I'm hoping that if you know your New Testament, that that sounds very familiar. What Peter says there, he's very much on the same page as the Apostle Paul. Romans 13 is the classic passage on how we are to view civil government human kingdoms. And Christians through every age have always wrestled with the kind of the the absolute nature of what Paul says here about how we are to live under earthly kingdoms. Let me read it to you again just to remind you. Romans 13, I'll read the first five verses. 
Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear for the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in a subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. That's pretty strong language. And we as Christians have to try to figure out how to live that out in the midst of very sinful kingdoms. This is a principle that goes all the way back to the beginning of Scripture, though. Remember in the covenant with Noah, after God basically wiped the slate clean of humanity and began again with Noah and his family to to establish the human race, in in the covenant with Noah, there's this language. God said to Noah, Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. We see that as the beginning of the institution of capital punishment. And really... All biblical theologians understand that that's where the power of civil authority is really established by God. That God established human authorities to restrain wickedness, to punish wrongdoers. And Paul is calling upon that concept. Praise God we do have civil government. As men have often said, the only thing worse than bad government is no government. Because we are anarchists by nature. And so God gives civil government to restrain wickedness in this fallen world until he can complete his work of redemption. As Daniel puts it in Daniel 4 verse 17, The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom, to, gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. God sets over kingdoms, the lowliest of men. That's not hard to believe. God sets those men in authority in earthly kingdoms. And you remember what Jesus said before, as he stood before Pontius Pilate and all of his smug, arrogant assertion of authority, our Lord Jesus said to Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Pilate ruled by God's permission, by his authority. All government authority is ultimately from God. And Paul and Peter both make it clear to resist government is to resist God. They even go so far as both of them call these civil authorities God's servants. It's hard to use that title for many of them, isn't it? But whether they acknowledge it or not, and vast majority of them don't. Praise God for the few who do. Whether they acknowledge it or not, those who rule in civil government are God's servants to do us good. Again, primarily to restrain wickedness and to, re- and to have order in society. Notice that Peter says we are to submit to every authority, every authority, every institution of man. Our submission is not limited by the type or form of the government. 
Literally, verse 13 says, be subject to every creation of man, every government institution created by men, no matter how flawed. You know, Paul uses the example, both Paul and Peter use the examples of the Roman Republic. Talk about an emperor. The word there literally means king. And then governor, which were the authorities, the the ones appointed by the emperor or by the Roman Senate to rule over regions. You are to submit yourself, to subject yourself to those authorities. There are many different kinds of government, and it's an ongoing debate every day as to what's the best kind of government. The American democracy is based upon a biblical worldview. And so many of us would say it's a good form of government, one of the best that men have ever come up with. But it's still a creation of men. And it's not perfect. Yes, it's better than many others. You've got an atheistic worldview that produced communism, and it's one of the worst forms of government that's ever been created by men. But Paul and Peter aren't making any distinction. If you're in a communist nation, submit to this authority because they're God's servants to do you good. If you're an American citizen, submit to those authorities because to do so is to submit to God. Notice also, as he says every authority, he's saying that our submission isn't limited by the character of the person in authority. As we said a moment ago, the governor who ruled Judea when Christ ministered was Pontius Pilate, who was, by all historical sources, a cruel and vicious man. And do you know who was the Roman emperor when Peter wrote these words? Emperor Nero, one of the most infamous of all emperors, especially to the church. Nero, who went insane in his thirst for power, killed almost all of his own personal family to protect his power and every political enemy that he had, he executed. And as you know, he blamed the burning of Rome on the church and used that as justification for some of the most horrific persecution the church has ever faced. He used burning Christians to light his garden parties. This is the man that Peter says that you are not only submit to, you're to honor him. This is the man who put Peter to death. Isn't that ironic? He says, submit to the emperor, even though the emperor would be crucifying him in short order. We submit to the God-ordained office, not the sinner who holds the office. And that has a lot of implications for how we live in this world. We submit to the God-given office, not the sinner who holds it. Yes, at this point, I know all of you are thinking, wait a minute. (laughs) There's got to be some limitation to our submission to government. Well, there is. And Peter alludes to it here in the very beginning of what he says. He says, Beginning in verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. For the Lord's sake. Submit to the emperor, submit to the governor for the Lord, the Lord's sake. 
the one who is in authority over all. When we would go away when our children were younger, we would have a babysitter come, as many who do, would come and care for our children while we'd be out of the house. And it was we always had to get that lesson across to our kids that just because mom and dad have left the house and they've left this virtual stranger here to watch over you, that doesn't mean that your parents' authority has gone away. You need to treat your babysitter. And I always had this speech with my kids before I leave the house every time. I'd say, you need to treat your babysitter the way you would treat me. You need to understand if your babysitter tells you to do something, it's like I'm telling you to do something. And if you disobey or won't mind your babysitter, you're going to have to deal with my authority when I come home. But my children also knew that if that babysitter told them to do something that I told them not to do, that they would obey their father and not the babysitter. That principle of authority works all through life. Christ is Lord. And whatever authority he has placed over us, that authority cannot tell us to do something that contradicts the authority of our Lord. That's why Moses' parents put Moses in a basket and placed him in the river. That's why the midwives in Moses' day did not turn the baby boys over to the Egyptian authorities to be murdered. That's why Daniel's three friends would not bow and worship the idol. That's why Daniel would not stop praying three times a day when Nebuchadnezzar commanded that all pray only to him. That's why Peter and the apostles stood before the Sanhedrin when they were told to stop preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and they said to the Sanhedrin, we must obey God rather than men. There may come a day when you are asked to do something that contradicts what the Lord Jesus Christ has told you to do. And you may have to stand before some civil authority and say, I must obey God rather than men. I serve the Lord Jesus Christ first and foremost. That's my primary cultural identity. I am a citizen of His kingdom. The principle that the church has always attempted to follow is that we are to always obey every earthly authority unless they require us to sin by disobeying our higher authority, King Jesus. Peter, interestingly, was the first one to exercise civil disobedience in the New Testament. Although he found out that it was actually against the will of his Lord as well when he pulled out his sword to cut off the servant's ear. He felt he, he was trying to apply this principle of obeying the Lord Jesus Christ, even if it meant disobeying civil authority. But the Lord rebuked him for that, for he did not understand the will of his Lord. But notice here that Peter emphasizes submission, not the exceptions. We always want to be so quick to look for the exception, but Peter doesn't even mention it here directly. He only indirectly alludes to it by mentioning that Christ is the Lord of these civil authorities. Matter of fact, in just a few verses, down at verse 21 of chapter 2, he's going to point to the example of Jesus Christ. 
He says in verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I am sure that the Lord, that, that Peter had in mind the Lord standing before Herod and Pilate when he wrote those words. Even though he was falsely accused, even though he was reviled, he did not speak up. He submitted. He submitted to the earthly authorities. Why? Because he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. We are to focus on submission because it's important to our witness. That's the point that Peter's trying to get across. We are trying to silence the false accusations of those who speak foolishly against us. It's part of our witness. And it's not just our outward actions. You know, the little kid who says, I may be, you know, who's standing in the corner, say, say I, I, I may be standing in the corner, but inwardly, I'm rebelling. You know, it's, I'm maybe sitting in the dunce's seat, but inwardly I'm, 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 I'm rebelling. And that's, you're not to have that attitude before the, the, the culture in which we live. He says, notice how he ends it. He says, honor the emperor. It's not enough just to begrudgingly submit. Honor the one in authority over you. Submit respectfully. Here's the rub, I think, in our own culture. We live in a country where our leaders are mocked daily by late-night comedians and Internet websites. I was so dismayed a couple years ago to hear that most 20-something adults get their news not from CNN or Fox News or CBS or NBC. You know where they get their news from primarily? Jon Stewart and The Daily Show. If you know anything about that show... That's scary to me, (laughs) that young adults, their primary source of news is a comedy show that's set up to satirize and mock and parody our civil authorities. Now, again, I'm not opposed to a good parody or, you know, there's, there's a place for that sort of thing. But it is rampant in our culture, this, this disrespect for authority. And we as Christians are to stand out against that. No matter how much we may disagree with the character and policies of those in authority over us, we must not develop the mocking and demeaning attitude of our culture toward them. And parents, let me give you a special word of exhortation here. You are the ones who teach this attitude. It begins in the earliest stages of children's lives in the home. It's up to you to teach your children to not just submit to authority, but to honor authority. Honor authority. So much of the time, we're happy if we can just barely hang on and get them to submit. But the Word of God calls us to something far greater. We are to teach them to honor the authority in their lives. The fifth commandment says, Honor your father and your mother. And if you go to the shorter catechism or the larger catechism of the Westminster Standards, you'll find there that in this commandment, the great teachers of the faith have always said that that's where you get the basis for, for submitting to authority in the school, in the, in the workplace, out there in society and government. It begins with teaching your children to honor 
their mother and their father. If children are not taught to submit respectfully with honor in the home, I guarantee you will not happen in the schools. And it will not happen in the workplace. And it will not happen out there on the streets. I grieve when I talk to school teachers these days. Because they not only have to deal with a lack of submission and a lack of obedience, but they get brutalized in the classroom because parents aren't teaching their children to honor the authorities in the home, let alone in the school. And notice, as Bert mentioned earlier, for every criticism, even legitimate, respectful, honorable criticism we offer for our leaders, we should pray twice. As, Tim, as Paul said to Timothy, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and for all who are in high positions. Honor them. Pray for them. That's what the world should see among Christians, not mocking and, and, and a lack of submissiveness. Honor them and pray for them and submit to them. But notice that Peter says, and I'm just going to wrap this up quickly with this second point, Praying and avoiding breaking their laws isn't going far enough. Because honestly, that's a pretty low bar. (laughs) If just being a law-abiding American citizen is all you're striving for, that's a pretty low bar. Peter raises it to a much higher level. He says that we are to serve our culture. Serve. We are to strive to make the culture a better place. We are to play hard for our earthly team. Verse 16, live as people who are free, but, he says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. We are to live before the world as people with servants' hearts because we serve the great servant himself, Jesus Christ. Let me take you back for a moment to that prophecy from Jeremiah to the exiles in Babylon. Let me give you a little historical context there. False prophets 